Due to the age of these recorded messages, there are parts of low quality that are hard to understand. We have done our best to eliminate these and make it as clear as possible. ...and different sections of the Bible. We have already uh, studied the first five books of the Bible, that five-fold volume that we call the Pentateuch, which is the foundation of the whole Bible, the whole of the Old Testament, and indeed the whole of the rest of the Bible is built upon that five-fold foundation of the Pentateuch. Joshua, Joshua is the beginning of a new section. Um, in the Hebrew canon, it was always called the former prophets. They had the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets, there were four of them, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And then there was the, what they called the four latter prophets, um, which were Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve that were counted as one book. Or, according to our canon, the scriptures that we have, the arrangements we have here in our Bible uh, today, it is the beginning of what we call the historical section of the Bible. Um, the historical section of the Bible, if you want to take your Bible, you'll find it quite uh, consecutive, is from Joshua to the book of Esther. That is, it runs right the way through quite a number of books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. That is the historical section of the um, Old Testament. And Joshua is the first book of that historical section. Now there are just one or two things that we ought to say. First of all, this historical section of the Old Testament comprises roughly about a thousand years of history. It spans a thousand years of God's dealing with his people. And in that thousand years there are three clear phases. Not everyone is agreed as to when those phases uh, end and where the new one begins, but all are agreed that there are three distinct phases in this thousand years of history. The first is from Moses to Samuel. The second is from Samuel to the division of Israel. And the third is from the division of Israel to the end of the Old Testament, that is the prophet Malachi. We have these three distinct phases, and each phase has its own message and illustrates particular principles. Um, from Moses to uh, Samuel, we have the period of the nation being constituted and developed. Um, all God's dealings with them now are to settle them in the land, to instruct them very clearly <coughs> and deeply, um, as to the nature of their calling as a nation. And therefore you find that Joshua, Judges, and the beginning of Samuel deal very much with the, the Is Israel as a nation being settled. You must remember that <clears throat> the scriptures don't just illustrate um, by good points. We, we have everything illustrated by the failure. In other words, the scripture uses a contradiction to testify to what should be as much as it uses what positively is good. And consequently, you get Joshua on the whole, a positively good story, and then you get judge, Judges, which on the whole is a positively bad story. But nevertheless, the two do teach us something very wonderful. They teach us those principles upon which God is pleased to lead and to vindicate and protect and increase his people. Then when Samuel comes, and um, as we go through these books, you will begin to see how gradually book after book builds up till you come to a very difficult overlap 
of the two phases. And that's where everyone has the difficulty in deciding where the phase ends and where the new phase begins. Some say, for instance, the books I have looked at, some say, oh, Saul um, is the beginning of the new phase. Others say, no, David is the beginning of the new phase. One or two say Samuel is the beginning of the new phase. Well, if you look at the scripture, I think you'll probably agree with me that Samuel is the beginning of a new phase. Everything, every, everything moves towards Samuel. Hannah cries for a son. Ruth, the story of Ruth is inserted in history just to provide us with the, uh, someone to fill the throne. And Samuel is there as the great um, turning point in the history of the people from it just being a nation that was under the rule of God into a monarchy. And so the next phase from Samuel, and I might just add that originally one or two Samuel and one or two kings were looked upon as the four books of the kingdom, and therefore Samuel was included in kingship, although he was actually only a judge, a priest, the prophet. Um, however, we find that with Samuel begins an altogether new phase, and we find that for the first time Israel has become a monarchy with a king. First we have a bad king, then we have a good king. Nevertheless, there begins a royal line, and that whole phase up to Solomon is just a great moving forward to a great climax. David spends his whole life seeking to build God a house, and you know the climax is reached when Solomon actually builds the house. Then, because of Solomon's sin, a terrible thing happens, and the nation is rent in two, never again, really, to be properly and genuinely united. And that brings in the next, third, last great phase of uh, history in the Old Testament. From the division of Israel into Israel and Judah, two tribes and ten tribes, both with their kings, and in the end, both with their centers of worship, both rivaling each other, split irrevocably in two. The whole story begins of decline and perversion of God's people, till in the end, Samaria is carried off into captivity, never again to be heard of, and it is followed some hundreds of years later by Judah being carried into Babylon. And then the story ends, as you well know, with the remnants coming back in Ezra and Nehemiah's day to rebuild the house and rebuild the walls. And the prophet Malachi ends, as far as we are concerned, the thousand years of history uh, with his great prophecy concerning the coming of the Lord suddenly to his temple. So you see, we, are, we have now left the Pentateuch, the foundational part of the Bible, and we are now in the first book of this thousand years of history. That's very, very important for us, I think, to understand. Because you see, this historical section is the building, and the Pentateuch is the foundation. We find here in this historical section, the principles contained in the Pentateuch um, exemplified or illustrated in every way. Continually you will find that all the way through this thousand years of history, kings and priests and prophets are having to come back to what the Lord said to Moses. And they're having to continually say to the people, you see, Moses said so and so and so and so, and because we've not done it, this has happened. And so you all the way find, right the way through, little stories like when David took up the ark, he forgot, he never, he never read the book of the law, and he forgot that Levites thought to take the ark on their shoulders, and instead it was carried on a cart. And the result was, you know, what happened, a terrible place spread to the people. And so they left the ark there because so many thousands died in the epidemic. And they sought the Lord, and when they searched the scripture, they found it should have been on the shoulders of the Levites. And as soon as they put it on the shoulders of the Levites, everything was all right. And so this is the following a little illustration. Again and again, in this whole 
thousand years of history, you will find continually they're having to go back and to find out what the Lord said to Moses. And in one way or another, you will find continually that they are being judged by the Pentateuch. Um, you take Solomon, for example. You perhaps will not realize that all those hundreds of years later, when Solomon built his house, he continually harks back to Deuteronomy and what the Lord said about the place that he should choose to cause his name to dwell in. And you know there's quite a few chapters that are taken up with just that. So we need to see that this whole historical section of the Bible is but the illustration of the principles contained in the Pentateuch. Then another thing we ought to just um, note is simply that um, we must not take the title historical books or historical section too dogmatically because there's quite a bit of history in the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and the others actually. And there is also quite a good deal of history, a large amount of history, in the Pentateuch. It is really, uh, I think, uh, um, a title of convenience more than anything else. And another thing I think we ought to make very clear is that it is not history as you and I know history. Um, this history of a thousand years is absolutely remarkable in things that it includes and the things that it excludes. There are known things which we would have made a great amount of that are just hardly mentioned, if not altogether omitted. And there are other things like the story of Ruth that we probably would never have thought of including in history, but which the Lord has inserted into history as a very important interlude uh, in it. So you see, uh, we have to recognize once again what was said, I think, many times, that the aim governs the scope. And if we are going to try and treat this historical section as uh, history, uh, much as you would find in an English textbook, uh, you, we, we will be sadly disappointed. This is simply a history from God's standpoint. And it therefore brings in and includes everything that in any way affects or realizes divine ends. So we must, from that standpoint, view these books. Why does the Lord include that in Why does he make so much of that person or that point of history? Because here we have the exemplifying and the illustration of principle. And from it we can learn a tremendous amount. Now the book of Joshua itself. What about its authorship? And what about its date? I think um, those of you who have read it, and I trust most of you have read part of it, if not all of it, will have noted, noted how much of it has been written by an idol. He speaks of we and us, and everything is very um, uh, recent, uh, the way he speaks. Another thing you will note is the little phrase that occurs 14 times in the record, unto this day. <laughs> Rahab, who lives amongst us unto this day. So it was evidently written in Rahab's lifetime. And there were many other things that were said, unto this day. Remains among, amongst us unto this day. This clearly reveals to us that a very large part of this book was written by an eyewitness, of the things and the events that it records. Now, the question is, have we any clue as to who is the author of the book of Joshua? Nowhere does Joshua claim uh, to be the author. Uh, it says in one or two places that he wrote certain things, and it says that uh, certainly that he spoke a lot, and also we can see quite clearly that he is what the main character in the whole story. 
Jewish tradition asserts very strongly that the author is Joshua. That most of it was material which he wrote and it was then added to and edited by later scribes. This may well be the truth. There is a modern theory uh, that in the very last verses of this book it speaks of the death of Joshua and then it says that Israel cleaved to the Lord all the days of Joshua and the days of the elders that outlived Joshua. And there is a modern theory that it may be one of those elders who either wrote this story, uh, this book, or um, edited it and added to it. We do not know clearly who it was, but whoever it was, it must have been a very short time after the events described and possibly during the actual events themselves. The book covers a short period of time. It covers only 25 years. Um, as to its date, there is a tremendous amount of controversy, and I think perhaps I ought just this evening to take one moment to explain to you that there are two systems of dating in the scripture for all these events. And that is why the dates that we have given you must be approximate. We have generally said that we've thought that most of the, uh, these books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and here, this book also, Joshua, were written uh, roughly about 1400, at least approximately. But it may be that it was written assembly from 1250 to 1225 BC. It's all a question of who exactly uh, you believe uh, to be the pharaoh uh, under which um, Moses um, led the people of Israel out of Egypt. And the law tremendous division of feeling and opinion in that matter among biblical scholars. However, we don't have to worry quite so much about the date. The point is it was written, and if we say approximately about then we need not worry too much. What is the key to the book of Joshua? I don't know whether most of you uh, found the key. I don't think it's a hard book uh, in this matter. At least I don't think it's at all hard. It seems to me that it's very clear. The key word is undoubtedly inherit or inheritance. This occurs approximately 58 times in these 24 chapters. It is a word used again and again and again and again to inherit and their inheritance. We have moved in this book, from redemption, from God's dwelling place, to our inheritance. And that I think we've got to note very clearly. We have moved from redemption as something glorious, wonderful, and affected by the Lord. We have moved to, from the whole question of God's dwelling place, which is his inheritance in the faith, his dwelling place, in us, his right in us. And we have now moved over to the other side, our inheritance in the Lord. The Lord is after a habitation in us. Now we're thinking of our habitation. So you see this book of Joshua speaks of the inheritance, which Peter tells us is an, uh, uh, an incorruptible one something which doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for us. Um, I think, really, much of the New Testament explains um, this word inheritance. And it would, if we only had time, it would be very good if you could look through many of the references to, to this matter in the New Testament. But wherever we turn in the book of Joshua, you will find everything is related to inheritance. Everything is relating, related to inheritance. Doesn't matter where you turn. Um, all roads lead back to this one thing, inheritance. And another interesting thing is 
that redemption, God's dwelling place and our inheritance are linked together and not only linked together but are linked together progressively. This simply means that by redemption we're brought to God's habitation and through God being part of God's habitation we come to our inheritance. There is no inheritance apart from God's habitation. This we must understand very clearly, otherwise we misunderstand the whole message of the letter to the Hebrews, which is not that we can lose our salvation. We cannot lose our salvation, but we can lose our inheritance. It says expressly and clearly in the book of Revelation that he that overcometh shall inherit these things. Therefore, salvation is not dependent upon overcoming, but our inheritance is dependent upon our overcoming. So the book of Joshua tells us very, very clearly that whilst we can be the people of God, we can die in the wilderness. But, we can still be the people of God, still be redeemed, and we can go over into the land and can overcome, and by overcoming can inherit. These two alternatives are put always before every child of God. Do you wish to fall short? A child of God, redeemed by the Lord, eternally, but you fall short and die in the wilderness. Or will you go over Jordan, into the land, and in the conflict, overcome by God's grace and obtain an inheritance in the land. We have to recognize then very clearly that these three things are linked together. Redemption, the habitation of God, God's church, God's, the body of the Lord Jesus, and inheritance. Three things linked together. You've often heard it said, not so much by me, but I do believe by others, that you will never come to the fullness of Christ individually. It needs the church to obtain the fullness of Christ. We can be individually filled with the Holy Spirit, but we can never come to our part of the fullness of Christ except with each other. This is the principle of the body and the habitation of God. The Lord is far too big to be contained by any one Christian. He needs all the believers together, knit together, fitly framed together, so that he may be expressed and dwell in them all. That is when they become the fullness of him that filleth all in all. We ought therefore to note that if the key to the book of Joshua is inheritance, there is another word which is continually stressed throughout this particular uh, book, and that is the word to possess. Uh, you will find that all the way through this book. And it simply means that our inheritance has got to be possessed. It doesn't come to us. We have to possess it. The Lord doesn't drop it into our lap. We have to go out and possess it. In a wonderful way, salvation comes to us. But uh, in our inheritance, we have to possess. We go in and possess our inheritance. Whereas God gives us his salvation and that sovereignly, although we receive it by faith, we can do nothing for it. I can't struggle for my salvation because I struggle greatly. I receive it. God gives it to me on the ground that I receive it as a free gift. But my inheritance uh, often involves a great conflict and a holy following after the Lord all the days of my life, if I'm going to know anything of possessing the inheritance. Another factor that we've got to note is that there is an element of conflict in, involved with this inheritance, always, no matter where you turn, you'll always find there's an element of conflict involved with uh, the inheritance. Um, any possessing, see, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on life, eternal life, to which thou calls. There is always an element of conflict, the very possessing of something to which we've been called. You, I think, uh, from what I've said, will already have recognized that um, our inheritance is linked with overcoming. And indeed, that is the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is simply those that overcame. Overcame and sat down. That is the book of Joshua. He that overcometh shall inherit 
Jesus. Now, what about the outline of this book? The first thing I want you to notice about the book of Joshua is how God uses men in his economy. It doesn't matter what God is doing, when God is moving. It is most interesting to see the way God uh, uses men. Most of you, I think, were here when Brother Lee spoke to us on the first time that he came. And this, I think, was the main emphasis in his message, that God takes men, and through men, he changes the dispensation. Now, it is so interesting to note this in this particular turning point in the history of the children of Israel. This story is really, as someone has said, the biography of Joshua. It seems as if it is all Joshua. <coughs> uh, although the people themselves did the work, uh, there are many names not even mentioned. Yet it seems it is Joshua was the one who was used of God to call them to inherit. Indeed, that is what the Lord said to him in his commission. That he would call, call Joshua, and uh, he would speak to Joshua to call the children of Israel to inherit the land. And it is very, very interesting that God never does anything in an organizational or institutional way. That is, it is interesting to note that it is always meant that God does his work in, and through them it sets the age. When you take Abraham, you take Joseph, you take Moses, you take Joshua, then you take Samuel, then you take David, and so you could go on. It is all the time meant. Now this teaches us, some of you might wonder what another I'm talking about, but this teaches us one of the basic and elementary principles in the Bible. God's work is myself, your God. God's work is not preaching, and it's not meeting, and it's not a movement, and it's not a preaching. God's work are people. We are God's we are God's children. We are God's children. We are the workmanship of God. This is most important that we should work. The rest flows out of that. If we are separated out of the work, what is this work? It is cooperating with God in the moulding and developing of Christ's character in belief. If we're just here to promote a movement or promulgate a teaching, uh, somehow or other public uh, things uh, and so on, we are falling very fast. We are here, surely, if only to edify them, to build one another, to call each other to inherit. I'm sure so often to do the flesh. Where did it come from? 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 And being lovely. And you can make other people be good here by just knowing that instead of being nice and irritable, short, and difficult, it's just simply about the people And there is that. This is something we all could take note of because that is such a question. Have you got there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so God. The, uh, uh, God's real work in us. So it's rubbish to talk about uh, the gospel 
and about the work, and to talk about the meeting, and to talk about the testimony, and to pray, and to witness, and all is something something from in which is the work of God in That is the work of God. This is the meaning of the Lord taking up people like Moses and making them up. Take up Joshua and make them up. Why doesn't the Lord send to everything in an institution or an organization or a teacher or familiar men? The Lord takes up men and he makes them fast in that age and in that generation. Do you understand that something more of the word that you shall be witnesses and Just think that God will do our God's work and sit at the head of that to let us then note very carefully how men do so bad, men and women do so bad in the economy of God. Then you will find in Joshua a very clear three-fold division. First of all, it is the first twelve chapters of Joshua, we find the conquest of the land. Then from chapter 13, chapter 22, we find the division of the inheritance. And in the last two chapters, chapter 23 and 24, are the farewells of Joshua. It's just this three-fold division, it's almost a two-fold division, except for the conclusion at the end of Joshua's farewell. And many people have said that the first twelve chapters of Genesis are the most woven together passage in the whole Bible. You can't divide them. They're absolutely one whole uh, story. Uh, obviously, one great question. Now, there are one or two things we could note. <clears throat> if you turn with me to the um, first part, the first twelve chapters of Joshua, find <clears throat> that the first twelve chapters of Joshua are again subdivided into two. The first five chapters deal with the preparation for the conquest. And from chapter 6 to chapter 12, that is, the last chapter, deals with the country, actual possession of the land. Now, if you look at the first five chapters, because beginnings are always important, the rest comes out of there, what do we find about the preparation for the conquest? I might just say this, that you will note, first of all, God does prepare. That is the whole point of the book of Numbers today. God prepares. Now it's for a new generation. They have been tested. Now they are for three days prepared. And I want you to know this certain thing. First of all, there, there is in the first nine verses the need to protect the life. The need to protect you. Joshua is told quite clearly that the Lord has given them everything. That he says, although he tells them that it is in a very vast area, almost a whole that area upon that map, he says that in practice it will be only that upon which they pray will they actually pray. He says in verse, I think, uh, 3, said upon, to you have I given it as I say unto me. This shows us the need to protect. The need to stand. To get over onto right ground and to stand. To explore. To protect it. There are many Christians who have got all the possibilities. Some people think that these people find them um, in a circle, uh, you know, that there are some that God has said, you, you, and you, and you, uh, you belong to an inner circle that I'm going to take on and make favored pages now. But that is not Into every child of God's hand has been given all the happiness, all of his It is up to you as to what to do. For instance, if God has given you justification and you want to play around with accusations and go under and bemoan them and get all into a mess about them, 
On the other hand, we've got to recognize that Jericho was a, a vile city. It had sunk to the lowest form of depravity and degradation that any human habitation could fit. And in that sense, probably Rahab was not very much different from the other citizens of Jericho. But the scripture tells us two things in the New Testament Three things, I think, about Jacob. First, it's within the royal line of the family. He must have married Jacob, someone uh, uh, who was in the royal line, one of the members of the family. He was obviously married. He was married one of the family and one of the But he was obviously married and was introduced to the line of the family. He was a good ancestry of the Lord himself. But um, uh, apart from that, the two other references to her, one is in Hebrews 11, which is included with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and all the other great men, they had a faith And they had is given us as an example of faith. And this means simply that we can be the rockiest kind of person in the world. And the second thing is this, that whatever had perverted Rahab and made her what she was, God did something in her because of her faith. Secondly, James told us that he knew not to that Rahab was not justified by faith alone, but by her virtue. What were her words? Is to say a and Satan on their way with that. So, Rahab speaks to us of faith and belief. And this is a tremendous need if the land is to be protected. If we are to gain an inheritance, do you realize that Rahab is the People make a lot about the destruction of all the tribes uh, in the promised land. But they forget that there are people like Rahab who were not only left alive, remained alive, but actually inherited in the land. This is something very, very wonderful, and I think we should take note of it together. There is the need of faith and obedience. And then you come to the chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. And these three chapters deal with the need of the fundamental need of the cross. If we are going to inherit, we're going to possess our inheritance, just the land, we have not only the need of faith and obedience, we've got the fundamental need of the cross. And I think this is the most foundational thing of all. And you will find it uh, mentioned in two or three forms in these three chapters. First of all, we, we, the first thing we come up against when we read chapter 2 is the joy. And the very first thing we find in chapter 2. We come up against the joy. What does the joy speak to us about? We've already had one cross into the Red Sea. Why does the children of Israel have to cross through another? What is the meaning? The Red Sea was a deliverance from Egypt. But the Jordan was a deliverance into the land. One side of the cross delivers us from our past and from our sins. The other delivers us into all that Christ wants and is. If we have only half been saved, we have been legally saved, our sins have been blotted out, our past has been blotted out, and we have been extricated from this world. But that's only one side of the cross. The other side of the cross is that we should be delivered into the land. The cross not only takes us out of the world, blocks out our path, cuts us off from the whole line of nature, but the cross also puts us into Christ, gives us an eternal destiny and vocation, and causes us to inherit. Jordan, therefore, speaks of something deeper than the Red Sea. The Red Sea was magnificent, it was glorious. But Jordan was deeper and much more positive than the Red Sea. 
The Red Sea only got a nation out of Egypt into the wilderness. The Jordan got them out of the wilderness into the land. By the Jordan, by the opening of the Jordan, God accomplished the end of Israel. When he took them out of Egypt, it was to make them a nation in their own land. By the Red Sea, he owned his heart of it. By the Jordan, he completed it. He brought them into the land. So I want you to notice that it is through Jordan that we have to pass if we're going to get into our own head. If we're going to suspect that, if we're going to really know his fullness, it's going to be by far deeper experience of the cross than ever we knew when first we came to the list. Jordan stands for something deeper, much more full and final than even the list too. And so you see that the first thing we know, that the waters of Jordan were that that divides the wilderness from the promised land, and they've got to go over. The way God does it is by putting the ark of his covenant in the temple of Jordan. When the ark of God's covenant is in the temple of Jordan, by the Red Sea he only did half of it. By the Jordan he completed it. He brought them into the land. So I want you to notice that it is uh, through Jordan that we have to pass if we're going to get into our inheritance. If we're going to possess Christ, if we're going to really know his fullness, it's going to be by a far deeper experience of the cross than ever we knew when first we came to the Lord. Jordan stands for something deeper, much more full and final than even the Red Sea. And so you see that the first thing we note, that the waters of Jordan were that that divides the wilderness from the promised land, and they've got to go over. The way God does it is by putting the ark of his covenant in the center of Jordan. When the ark of God's covenant is in the center of Jordan, the waters uh, are divided. They are, it's like dry ground. And this is just where you and I will find the presence of God in the cross. If you think you're going to find the presence of God anywhere else, you must remember that the oil must never, that holy anointing oil must never touch the flesh. You will only ever find the presence of God in the cross. It is Christ crucified who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we have to recognize firstly that the Jordan is the natural barrier between the wilderness uh, as such and the promised land, that into which God was taking them. And he had to part that to take them over. The second thing I want you to notice is that there are memorial stones of which a lot is made in this, these chapters. And I think perhaps some of you may be just a little bit confused. It would help you to describe this. First of all, it would just seem that God is asking um, uh, Joshua to take twelve men, one to represent each of the tribes, to go to where the priests were standing with the ark in the center of Jordan, and to take twelve large stones and place them on the, uh, the promised land side of Jordan. But when you read more carefully, you will notice that not only... Uh, does that actually happen? Twelve men are chosen to go back to where the ark is in the midst of Jordan, take twelve large stones from out the bed of the river, and place them on the promised land side. But you also find that Joshua takes twelve stones from the other side of the Jordan and plants them in the bed of the river. Now what does this mean? <clears throat> it speaks simply of this, that one nature one life, one kind of person has been buried in Jordan. And an altogether new person has been raised. And this is just what baptism signifies. Buried with Christ in baptism. And we are raised with him to walk in a newness of life. If we're going to possess our inheritance, it will be only as we understand what it is 
to have been crucified with Christ. Twelve stones buried and the waters drowned them. Twelve new stones as a memorial, as a testimony to the grace and sovereignty <coughs> of God, of the new time, new life, new beginning. So <coughs> let us understand that uh, the meaning of that God is finished with one kind of person. Forty years he took to finish with that generation till they died. They ended. And now he's got a new nation and a new people. And these stones are the memorial of that. And then again you will notice another thing in these chapters. They are all circumcised. And this speaks of the cross and our affection. The cross and our natural life. Not simply enough to emphasize generally that our old nature has been crucified. But now we, are, we, we have brought before us the circumcision of our natural life. Something really put away and dealt with. So you see, this is something which is very full. And then we find they call the name of that place Gilgo, which means a wheel or rolling. Because, um, says Joshua in chapter 5 and in verse 9 unto this day, this was the first place that they put their feet on in the promised land. And there they set up twelve great stones, rather like Stonehenge. And they called that place Gilgal. And it was always from that day forward called Gilgal. The wheel. Now what is God speaking about? And then he says, I have rolled off the reproach of Egypt from you. Okay, why? How does God roll off the reproach of Egypt? They're 40 years distant from Egypt. Surely uh, there's no reproach of Egypt upon them. What is this wheel? Listen, the cross is a wheel. It's a wheel. It takes you right round the whole circle of your life and brings you back to nothing. That's exactly what happened in the wilderness. They went right round at everything till every part of their natural life was exhausted until they died. And then the Lord said, I've rolled off the reproach of Egypt. It's finished. Egypt is no more. You've often been told that God took them out of Egypt, but it took 40 years for God to take Egypt out of them. This was the reproach of Egypt that God rolled off by a circuit, by a full wheel, by a full cycle. Some of us have to travel sometimes a full cycle in experience. For God deals with us by the cross. So do let us understand something of that. And then you come back to something that you all say straight away, well, why wasn't that at the beginning? You suddenly find they all sit down and they celebrate the Passover. Now why didn't they celebrate the Passover at the beginning? Because you know, <clears throat> when God has taken us the full cycle of our natural life, we need to be reestablished in what it means to be justified. If we don't know what it is for Christ to have been uh, offered for us, for us, for our sins, to wash them away, God can never really deal with our sins. To really deal with our old nature means that we've got to be firmly grounded in the fact that we've been justified by the grace of God. Otherwise, I'm afraid we end up in about it, we end up so smashed that the enemy can do anything else. We've got to understand what it is that Christ died for us. So when the Lord has shown them something on the meaning of Jordan, when he's told them of the full cycle, he's taken them around to roll off this reproach of Egypt, when they've seen what it is to be drowned in the river and for new stones and testimonies of God's new creation on the banks, Raised, 
When he circumcised them afresh to renew his covenant with them, a new man, a new creation, and circumcision which is the mark, then God says, now sit down and celebrate the Passover. So you see, here you have a very full picture of the need of the cross. If we're going to inherit the inheritance, the cross has got to do its work. Otherwise, we'll always be evading issues. And there are many people who can only hold on to their peace by evading issues. They are frightened to face the Lord fully. They are frightened to face issues fully. There are things that they just daren't, daren't think about. And you all know people who take it out on one another because they find they're facing the issue when they look at you. This is something which only the Lord can deal with. And he has to deal with it by the cross. If we're going to inherit it, it's going to be by the cross. And then you'll find in these last few verses of chapter 5 that Joshua has a very vivid experience. He's outside the walls of Jericho and suddenly he sees cap- uh, a man, a man of war, obviously, with a great sword in his hand. And he's standing with his sword unsheathed. Obviously, he's going to execute. And Joshua immediately asks him who he is. Is he for them or is he against them? And he says, neither. And that is very interesting because you would have thought he would have said, with you. He says, neither. I am captain of the Lord's host. This tells us, sets forth for us, the need of the headship of Christ. If we're always expecting, as so often we are, that the Lord will be with us, taking our side, I think we're going to have some time or another, another thing coming. The Lord does not take our side. When the Lord says, I will not fail you, it's only in so far as you are with the Lord. It's when you're holy with the Lord that the Lord does not fail you. He doesn't take your side. As soon as you take sides, the Lord leaves you to fight it out. As soon as you take the Lord's side, the Lord himself is your protection. And the thing that um, Joshua had to learn was that he wasn't leader of the people. This one was captain of the Lord's host, and he was come to lead them into victory. So we have to learn these things if we're going to inherit. That is not only the fundamental need of the cross, but the Holy Spirit has got to really lead us. We've got to be absolutely under the captaincy of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely under the captaincy of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we get nowhere. We can never be under the Lordship of Christ unless we know the cross. We can pretend we are, but sooner or later our stars will be seen through. The cross is the only means by which we can really be brought under the Lordship of Christ. So you see that preparation for the Lamb is rather um, amazing. It's something which is full of, um, of principle as far as we're concerned. Now, the procession of the land is something really over which we will not take um, so long, because it is self-explanatory. But I don't know whether most of you know that Joshua has been called one of the most brilliant generals in history. In fact, a little while ago, there was a series of articles in the Evening Standard upon uh, (coughs) Joshua and others as military commanders by um, a military man himself today. Joshua has been hailed as one of the most brilliant generals in history. And certainly when you read through the book of Joshua, he knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, the way one point he took, he, he used this form of attack. He always changed his form. He never used the same one twice. Under the leadership of the Lord, Joshua was continually changing. He's always surprising them. And you can see that it was because he was surprising the enemy <coughs> that he won the victory so often. It says again and again through Joshua, he came upon them unawares. One place it tells you why he came upon them unawares. Because they didn't sleep all night. 
they uh, journeyed all through the night, and that was how they came upon them, uh, when they least expected it. But perhaps the most remarkable thing of all, uh, as far as um, Joshua was concerned, was that it, uh, the whole the promised land was <coughs> split up into a very large number of petty kingdoms, uh, none of which uh, was in any way really allied to the other. Um, there were a whole lot of little kingdoms, uh, Amorite kingdoms, there were a whole lot of Hittite kingdoms, there were a whole lot of Hivite kingdoms, and so on. Little groups all through the land, the whole thing was split up into these little kingdoms. They were only allied in one thing, against the threat of a common invasion. When that came, they all had an alliance which they invoked uh, and that meant that all were united against one common invader. Now, <clears throat> the Lord told them to cross over, there's Gilgal, to cross over, over against Jericho. This is, is rather wonderful in a way, because <clears throat> Joshua did not lead the children of Israel from, uh, to attack the land from the south. If he had done so, um, he would have met with a very strong um, range of fortresses, which were right, which were built right across the southern part of these kingdoms, um, for quite some time had been manned uh, against Egyptian uh, invasions. If um, they had um, sought to take the land from the <coughs> south, they would have um, had a very, very stiff fight indeed. Neither did they take the land by going right up here and coming down the north. Because Joshua knew, and the Lord knew better than Joshua, that if they came down through, by the north, all the kingdoms would unite in one solid block. Instead, they came over Jordan, the one way that uh, the tribes thought was impossible, particularly because Jordan was in flood time. The banks, the banks had been overflowed well on either side uh, to make it absolutely impossible to take over a whole nation of people. So, you see, that is why they were not really so very afraid on this side as they watched the children of Israel encamping on the other side of Jordan. But it was that strategy of Joshua's that so wonderfully proved itself in the end. Because he did one simple thing. When the Lord took them over Jordan, they attacked Jericho, and then they, they attacked Ai. There's Ai. They attacked Ai and Jericho. These two cities were absolutely key, key to their victory. These cities guarded the passes into central uh, Palestine. If they could take these two cities, the whole of central Palestine was open. Joshua's strategy was to take the whole of central Palestine, that is right across here, and cut the two portions of the land, uh, cut the land into two portions. Um, <coughs> so you see, um, Really, the next part of these chapters, from chapter 6 to chapter 12, are the story of the campaigns of Joshua. First of all, from chapter 6 to chapter 8, you have the story of his central campaign. That is Jericho, uh, Ai, and then Gibeon, which was all this. He took that very easily, in a sense. Then all the kingdoms of the south banded together in an alliance, five kings particularly banded together, and attacked the Gibeonites. And um, Joshua slaughtered them all, and then went on to the conquest of the whole south of the land. Then the kings of the north, who were thought to be stronger, allied themselves, and they attacked Joshua. Um, Hazor was the man who actually was the leader of them at a place called Miron, Waters of Miron. 
And there, the final battle for the land was fought, and the whole of the north was taken then. So from chapter 6 to chapter 8, you've got his central campaign. From chapter 9 to chapter 10, you've got his southern campaign, Joshua's southern campaign. And from ch chapter 11 deals with his northern campaign. And then um, chapter 12 is the summing up of the lot. I think you will all learn some stories from the campaigns of Joshua. You all know the story of Jericho. How six days they marched round Jericho, uh, the priests first, the ark next, and then the people in orderly fashion, silently, without a single word or murmur of conversation, except the trumpets blowing. And then on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, they went round six times like that, and on the seventh time, you know, when the trumpets blew, the people shouted, and the walls fell down. Um, you know, I think, something of the spiritual significance of that story, surely. It is timing, which is important in all God's victories. You may have to wait seven days, and on the seventh day, you may have to wait an awful long time, but God's victory is always timed. That needs faith to put the priests first, to blow the trumpet, needed a lot of faith to shout uh, on the seventh day, uh, on the seventh round, and then to expect to see the wall fall down just to shout, was certainly expecting quite a, an amount of faith.